Nationalism has become something of a hot buzzword in political circles today, especially political circles on the American right. In the past year alone, there have been two books by conservative scholars, one by Rich Lowry and the other by Yoram Hazoni, talking about the affirmative virtues or conservative case for nationalism. President Trump, for whom most conservative voters voted in 2016, describes himself as a nationalist. And there have been conferences dedicated to reviving a new kind of national conservatism. What is nationalism? Does it really actually fit into the American conservative political tradition? Or is it something else? In this podcast, the first of an occasional series of podcasts we'll do about the future of conservatism in the American tradition, I want to outline what nationalism is and why embracing it, for conservatives at least, is a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad idea. I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. Welcome back, podcast listeners, to Blind Politics. I'm Dr. Nolte from the Robertson School of Government at Regent University. Once again, and especially as we get into these posts on conservatism, I want to say that the views reflected here do not necessarily represent the views of the Robertson School or Regent University. I work in a place where there are a number of different views about conservatism. There are also a number of scholars here who would not consider themselves part of that tradition. Uh, but it certainly is a lively debate. And so part of what we want to do in this podcast is engage that debate. Now, the quote at the end about a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day at the end of the intro may have been a little bit familiar to you if you're at all familiar with kids' books. In particular, Alexander, who had a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day in a book that was read to me several times as a child. So what do I mean when I say that nationalism will lead to some of these negative consequences for conservatism? To answer that question, I need to do a couple of things. Number one, define what I mean by American conservatism, because the American conservative political tradition is unique in some sense. Second, define nationalism. And third, describe some of the incompatibilities between those traditions. As we move forward in this occasional series, and I'm going to be recording these on a semi-regular basis and posting them kind of when we don't have as many topical things to discuss, I'll talk about some other alternative visions that have been put forward of conservatism recently. So first podcast, I want to talk about nationalism. In a subsequent podcast, I want to talk about integralism or the new Christendom. And then I think in the final podcast, I want to talk about liberalism, liberal conservatism, libertarianism, and some common misconceptions about what liberalism or the liberal tradition means, at least in the conservative conception of that. And I think that those misconceptions and clarifying that will, will help ultimately define where I think we should go. I would say that I'm also, and I'll tip my hand here a little bit at the beginning, I am describing these different phenomena in direct proportion to my level of sympathy, starting with the least sympathetic. So I have the least sympathy for nationalism. I have a little bit more sympathy for the idea of integralism and Christendom. And ultimately, although it's not where I come down, I understand where some of the folks that are, are thinking about that idea are coming from. And I think that part of what is wrong or inaccurate in some of their thinking is uh, just some, some myths about history, some misunderstandings of history, and some misunderstandings of what integralism actually means, and how this sort of integration between church and state has actually affected Christian history. So I think that that is, I understand more of it, but I think that there are some, some critical, and I would ultimately say fairly dangerous mistakes in that. And then, you know, liberal conservatism, the idea of conserving the liberal tradition. I think that there's a lot that is good and positive in that. 
but I think we need to have a very clear understanding of what we mean and what we're talking about. There are varieties of liberalism, and some of those varieties of liberalism are indeed worthy of critique, and some of the critiques that have come out of them have been, I think, strong. I think the problem with a lot of those critiques is they tend to assume that all liberalism is the same, and that's not the case, as we would expect from a movement like that. So, nationalism. Now, I've just said that liberalism has different varieties, and one of the arguments that I've seen most commonly is that nationalism itself also has different varieties. After all, there are different ideas, different varieties of nationalism, and the argument that is most common is that some of these varieties of nationalism are actually compatible with the American and the Anglo-American political tradition. So what is conservatism in the Anglo-American political tradition, and what is nationalism? I would say conservatism always to begin with, is an attempt to conserve what already exists. It is the idea that we can face new challenges that are emerging in society by preserving what is richest in the old, what is richest in the heritage that has been passed down. So conservatism, in any given context, will always draw on the traditions of that society. And conservatism is not really a static thing. Conservatives aren't reactionaries. The difference between reactionary and conservative and a conservative is that a reactionary is looking at that tradition and saying we want to actually go back to a point in history that existed previously. Conservatives are not so foolish as to believe that the clock can actually be reset. However, I think conservatism does understand itself and does understand tradition as serving as a guidepost for the future. To understand the future, we need to begin, conservatives would say, by looking at the past and by drawing from the resources of the past to fashion solutions for future-oriented problems. So a, the difference between a conservative and a progressive is that a conservative is going to look at something new. Can we deal with this new thing? Can we address this new issue by learning from something old? Are there lessons? Are there possibilities of solutions that we can draw actually from our own past history and past traditions? Progressives will say, well, this is a completely new thing, and so we need something that is completely new, completely outside of the tradition, and we need to really build that based on our reason. And so the progressive view of the past is, well, maybe the past was good in the past, but now we've transcended that, we've moved beyond that, and we don't really have much to learn from it. A conservative would say, well, no, I think we do need to draw on that tradition, we need to learn from the past, and we need to be very careful about creating anything new that departs from the traditions of the past. So you can see how you would probably need both progressivism and conservatism in society to a certain degree. You want progressives because they're always coming up with new things, new solutions, new ways of doing things. But you want conservatives because conservatives can maybe say, this thing that you think is new, we've actually tried it in the past and it hasn't worked. Right, so that's the dynamic tension between progressivism and conservatism. And it's good to have both in society. Conservatives are not always right. But progressives are also not always right. And usually, most solutions we, we find, ultimately, there's, there's a compromise. You, you bring in some new things, and you also preserve some things that are old. So when we talk about American conservatism, what are Americans trying to conserve? I would say that conservatism in the American sense has really come down to three different aspects. And these three aspects sort of define, in some ways, the, the, the sides of the conservative, intra-conservative debate that we're having right now. And what we're finding is that people are sort of going to the ultimate extreme for each of these different aspects of American conservatism and sort of trying to make that the new dominant paradigm. So I would say the first of these is liberalism. Liberalism is an integral part of the American tradition. And so American conservatives are, in a sense, conserving the liberal elements of that tradition. They're conserving certain aspects of liberalism. 
I don't want to spend as much time defining liberalism today because we're going to spend a lot of time about that in a future podcast. What I would say in terms of the liberal tradition is that it fundamentally begins with the idea that there are limits on government, that there are areas of society, that there are aspects of human nature, that there are natural rights and and natural authorities, responsibilities, and domains over which the government should not exert control. In other words, what we're, we're looking at here is not the idea of total government control of every aspect of society, but that there are limits and that there should be limits on that. And liberals disagree about where those limits are and what areas are domains for government's interest versus areas in which government's interest should be limited. And so there are both liberal progressives and liberal conservatives. And I would say that that has become, it has also become clear in recent years that there are illiberal progressives and illiberal conservatives. But generally speaking, conserving liberalism is one of the base elements of this conservative tradition. The second aspect, I would say, is religiosity and religious freedom conceived of in a specific way. And that would be freedom of or for religion. Okay, so when we talk about religious freedom, Everybody talk, Everybody likes the idea of religious freedom, but they tend to define it with a phrase that starts with freedom and ends with religion. However, the preposition in the middle changes, and that makes some very, very different outcomes, right? So some people will say we need freedom through religion. It is only through religion that we can be free, and so government can impose religion on society because in doing so, it is actually making people free. Another way that we could define this is freedom for religion. Right, that we need to have a public square that is free and allows religion to operate and to function in this public square, but sees religion as a, as a public good and is comfortable with certain ways in which religion is promoted by government in a general sense. So I would say the classic definition of this is if you look at Virginia in the 1780s, Patrick Henry and George Washington are advocating for a neutral religious tax. You're going to be taxed a certain amount of your income as a Virginia citizen, and you can designate that to any religious body of your choice, but you must pay your tax in some sense. And they're doing this in sort of a way of, in a non-sectarian way of promoting public religion, right? And so this is part of the American tradition. It's not the part of the American tradition that ultimately gets represented in the Constitution, or in the application of the Constitution's non-establishment clause in the 14th Amendment. But it is a part of the American tradition, because you have people like John Marshall, the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, George Washington, the first President of the United States, and Patrick Henry, one of the country's most famous orators, who are all advocating for it. Okay? The next definition would be freedom of religion, and this is the typical Jeffersonian-Madisonian idea, that we need to have freedom of religion that is broad enough to allow people to opt out. And they are not necessarily opposed to religion. They think that religion is a good thing, but they are broadening things to say that freedom of religion includes the freedom not to be religious, with the assumption, I would say, on their parts at least, that you're still going to have a society that's primarily religious and that religion is a good thing, but that really to promote this good, the best way for the government to do that is to be completely hands-off. So they favor a very, very liberal approach to religion. Okay, and then the last one, and this is much more French in its origin, although it's becoming more popular in the United States in some circles, is freedom from religion. So this is the one where people say that religion is actually a a, not a public good, but it's responsible for most bad things in society. And so what they mean by religious freedom is the freedom from any religion. And they would say if people want to be religious in their own private lives, as long as it doesn't go outside the door of the house or the door of the church, that's fine. But they see religion as generally a negative thing or a bad thing that they tolerate, right? So this is not religious freedom. It's actually religious toleration, which is a very different approach. 
Okay, so religiosity, religious freedom, the idea of preserving that of or for in the phrase, freedom for religion or freedom of religion, is an important aspect of American social conservatism. And social conservatives have generally, I would say, leaned a little bit more on the for end, freedom for religion. And so, you know, to that end, they're wanting to say that it's okay for the government to do, to promote religion in some, some ways that they consider a little bit more neutral. You know, it's okay to recognize the profound Judeo-Christian roots of American democracy. In fact, they would say it's important to recognize that and preserve that recognition and preserve that understanding uh, that that's where we come from, right? So that's the social conservative soul. The third aspect, and the aspect that we're going to primarily address today, is the idea of American exceptionalism. This is the idea that there's something special or unique about the United States. It stems all the way back to the 1630s when you have people like John Winthrop talking about the city on the hill. And American exceptionalism is an important part of this American conservative tradition. And the American conservatives would have a tendency to be very skeptical of anybody who's saying that Americans are not exceptional, that there's not something exceptional and worth preserving about America in and of itself. And so you can see how each of these things taken to its logical extreme represents one of the sort of alternative visions of conservatism. One is sort of liberal liberalism taken to, taken to its extreme is libertarianism, which says the government should do almost nothing. The government should be out of almost every sphere of society. Social conservatism, taken to its ultimate extreme, is more the idea of integralism, right? So freedom through religion. That if religion is this social good, then why are we creating this artificial distinction between religion and state? The state should just promote religion because its interest doing so is in the interest of common good. And the third one is nationalism, right? So if American exceptionalism, if America is exceptional, then why not be nationalist? To answer this question, we need to actually define what nationalism is. This itself is a somewhat controversial question, because everybody seems to have a slightly different definition for what nationalism means. Some people say, well, nationalism just means love of country. Okay, that's, that's one definition that's out there. Others will say nationalism has a much more specific meaning that comes out of a specific historical circumstance. I think that if we're distinguishing nationalism for patriotism, patriotism, and you know, even some of nationalism's conservative defenders like Lowry and Hazoni have recognized there is this distinction. And they would say patriotism is that love of country, and that nationalism has a little bit more meat on the bones than that. And I think that is, I think that's that's definitely true. Patriotism is a love of country that may or may not be politicized. And I would say patriotism also kind of starts from a sense of localism. You know, we love our country because we love our local Memorial Day parade. We love our local communities. We, we have these civic bonds and civic ties that make us think of the country. And so that's a, a sense of patriotism. Like when you think of the country, you think of your local flag day, your local Memorial Day parade, uh, fireworks on the 4th of July, you know, summer barbecue, whatever it might be, right? There's a local element to that. And that's a very strong, natural feeling, and I think that it, is, it ought to be, at least, completely uncontroversial within conservatism, that patriotism is good. This is something that we can all hopefully agree on, and really everybody except for a very narrow strand of, of sort of internationalist progressives would probably uh, tend to agree with that. I do think that if you start to get into a certain level of, of talking about the idea of restoring Christendom, patriotism becomes sort of problematic, but we can talk about that in a future podcast. But this is sort of generically something, somebody that, everybody something that everybody should be able to agree is, is perfectly fine and is a perfectly legitimate, not only legitimate sentiment, but a natural sentiment that has a, a strong and positive role to play in politics. Nationalism is where we get a little bit more controversial because nationalism implies that there is a political program to patriotism. So what is that political program? 
So Lowry defines nationalism as the idea that people ought to be organized into nation states, that the sovereign nation ought to be the natural mode of government under which people live, and that you know there is a, a sense in which that sovereignty is normative and should be normative for the world as a whole. Hazoni seems to kind of go in this, a similar direction, if not the same direction. And for Hazoni, he tries to root this idea in the Bible, you know, the idea that, that nations are blessed in the Bible. That is one way of talking about nationalism, and I think that there, you know, it is the basis of nationalism in a sense, this idea that, that there ought to be what Woodrow Wilson called self-determination. This is certainly a Wilsonian notion. However, I think one of the problems that you find if you start looking into the argument is that it's not actually in the Bible. There is one nation that is, is certainly seen as something that ought to be independent, the nation of Israel is independent throughout most of its history in the Bible, but it's not unified throughout most of that history. It's unified in a very brief time period. And the Israel, the nation of Israel, has complicated relationships with empires that are a lot more complicated, I would say, than Hazoni and Lowry and some of these other folks want to let on. So on the one hand, God is saying you can't work with certain empires in, in scripture. The Assyrians are right out. The Egyptians are right out. They're bad. Cyrus the Great, on the other hand, not necessarily. You know, Cyrus the Great runs the most cosmopolitan universal empire in the ancient world and is described as a redeemer in messianic language in the book of Isaiah. Right, so what's that about? Well, God is not actually, as it turns out, concerned with whether the government is a nation state or an empire or, you know, whatever. That's not God's primary concern, which is not particularly surprising because God is in fact more of a theologian than he is a political scientist. Right, so God's primary concern in the Old Testament is what? It's idolatry. It's, are these emperors or kings, or kings of Israel for that matter, of the nation? Are they worshipping the one true God, or are they worshipping idols? And that makes the distinction. Cyrus is not seen as an idolater, and so working with him, seeing him as a messianic figure, you know, submitting to his authority is praised in books like Ezra, Nehemiah, and even, if not overtly praised, then praised by implication in the book of Zechariah, right? So there, there is a difference here, and there, there's a differentiation between empires. And we also get a very different view, by the way, of the Roman Empire from the book of Maccabees than we get from the New Testament, because again, it's this question of idolatry. In Maccabees, the Romans are allies. They're not imposing any type of idolatry. In fact, they're helping the Maccabeans fight against the idolatrous Seleucids. However, by the time we get to Jesus, it's a very different situation. And you had people trying to set up the Roman eagle in the temple. And that is a, a certainly a negative thing from the perspective of the Jews. From a Christian perspective, empire is even less critiqued because the Roman Empire is clearly idolatrous. And Paul is saying that the Roman authorities are still ordained by God. And the reason for that, I would say, is because the fullness of God's kingship has been revealed in the person of Christ. So it's now no longer required that you have this sort of national covenantal project, whether that covenantal project is under the rule of your own national king or under the rule of an empire, what's really more important is that people are in allegiance to Christ. And they can do that under Roman authority, they can do that in separate nations. The allegiance to Christ and that heavenly citizenship is the ultimate fulfillment of the counter-idolatry ethic that you get in the Old Testament, and it's fulfilled in Christ, right? So I think the biblical arguments for nationalism are just flat wrong. They don't take into account big chunks of the Bible. They don't take into account from a Christian perspective, which is not, I mean, Europe is only, to be fair, is not a Christian. He's writing it from a Jewish perspective, and the argument is stronger if you're just looking at the Old Testament, although I think Cyrus is still a problem for you. 
But certainly from a Christian perspective, you know, a lot of that has been changed with the advent of the New Testament in terms of a political relationship. Does God still have a special plan for the Jewish people in the New Testament is a totally different question. And we don't really need to answer that question from the perspective of nationalism, but you know, be, be what we're talking about in terms of nationalism is more this question of political organization, right? So it's not biblical. This idea of nationalism, that, that we ought to be organized into nation states is not biblical. It's not necessarily unbiblical either, but you can't, I don't think, dragoon this counter-idolatry ethic that's being established in both testaments of the Bible in support of the nationalist project. That doesn't mean that the Bible is against the nation state. I don't necessarily think that's, that's the right implication either. So what is the origin of this nationalist idea. So if you ask a nationalist, nationalism has its origins in the natural tendencies of people to group together in nations. Some people will say that it's an, uh, ties of blood. Others will talk about ties of language. Others will talk about ties of creed. I think personally, and this is from my background, somebody who studied comparative politics a lot, all of that is wrong. Because what brings nationalism into focus is the state itself. You don't get nationalism without a state and without a strong centralized state in specific. What do I mean by that? Well, there might be a nation, a French nation, an English nation, a German nation in some sense, that exists as one among several contending identities that people have in the late medieval, early modern, and sort of mid-modern period. But the nation does not get transformed into nationalism, I would say, until the 19th century, with a couple of partial exceptions. So England is a partial exception. There is kind of a creedal nationalism in England, but it's not defined by the English language, as Rich Lowry argues that it is. It's not defined by English ethnicity, as some of the people who are writing about Anglo-Saxon supremacy in the 19th and early 20th century are. It's actually defined by the Church of England. English nationalism has its origins not with the King James Bible or with Shakespeare, but with the Book of Common Prayer, because there is this settlement that comes out during the reign of Elizabeth I that says, we're not going to be as Catholic as the Roman Catholics or as Protestant as the Calvinists. We're going to have this middle way in which we have a liturgical book of common prayer to which you must conform if you're going to be a good Englishman. This should not be surprising because in the medieval time period, English identity is very much wrapped up with Christianity. Right? So if you were somebody who lived in England, but you spoke Danish, but you converted to Christianity, you're probably going to be classified by the chroniclers of the time period as English. If you're somebody whose native English language is, is one of the dialects of English at the time, but you convert and you become a Norse pagan, they're going to probably still describe you as a Dane, because religion has a lot to do with it at that time period. So there's some religious identification that comes in that is prior to the nation. But there is this kind of national project in England, but it's a national religious project. It is a Protestant project before it is an English national project. And to be a good Englishman is to be a conforming Anglican Protestant. That comes first. And it's really, I would say, only in our post-Enlightenment view in which we see religion as something that is ancillary that we get this backwards, right? So there's a quip in English political thought that the Church of England in the 17th and 18th centuries, the Tory party, or the Conservative party, the Tory party at prayer. This is backwards. The Tory party is the Anglican national project in politics. And so, you know, that's something that we could maybe do a nerdy side podcast on if people are interested. Other than that, where does nationalism start? I would argue that it actually starts in Western and to a certain extent Southern Europe sometime between 1800 and 1900. That this is the origin of nationalism and the origin of the modern concept of the nation state. 
Before that, you have some countries that are really trying to build these centralized state apparatuses. The French come to mind with the idea of French absolutism, but it all runs through the monarch. And French absolutism is really much more of an integralist type of government. We'll talk about the differences between those two next next week. By the way, I think the English national project fits more into the integralist mold than the nationalist mold. And so, you know, because it, it's fused around this idea of the king as embodying both church and state. And so the French Catholic Church and the French nation are brought together in the king. That's not really a nationalist project. That's a form of monarchist integralism. Because in nationalism, right, the nation is separate from any one individual. The nation is embodied not in kings, but in the state itself. Right, that that becomes central for nationalism. So how do we get this idea of nationalism? First of all, it comes from, and this a lot of this comes from a scholar named Benedict Anderson, who writes a book called Imagined Communities. Anderson, by the way, is not a nationalist. He is a communist, a Marxist, who's trying to understand why Marxism essentially doesn't work in nationalist contexts. And as is often the case, when Marxists are trying to explain why their theory doesn't work, they end up coming up with some really interesting and innovative stuff. So one of the things he points out is that nationalism has its origins with the development of what he calls print capitalism, newspapers. Right, newspapers play an important role in the development of nationalism. And the other thing that he sees important is the destruction of sacred time and, and what he calls homogeneous empty time. In other words, there's a time that is experienced everywhere by everyone equally that is defined by things like the newspaper, by the railroad schedules. I would argue that two other factors are really important in developing nationalism. And that is that you now have the development of stronger centralized authorities that are more localized, right? And they are needing to develop the ability to wage war and collect taxes. This is the goal of pretty much every state. And state makers start to realize sometime post-Reformation, based on sort of the Westphalian system, that if you have a territory that has clear delineated borders, it's actually much easier within that boundary for the state to have a stronger, more centralized level of control. So if you have this stronger, more centralized level of control over a bounded territorial area, an area that is is bounded and, and specifically bordered, it becomes much easier to wage war because you can conscript people into the army and to collect taxes because you can get a lot of granular detailed information on people in that smaller area and it's a more effective way of raising revenue. Right, so these governments are realizing that they're more effective at this, but they have to give people a reason. They have to give people an an idea to draw in. And this is where the nation becomes important. So you start to have these newspapers that are giving people a common sense of community that is, is based on shared language. You also have the rise of romanticism, which begins the creation of, of national historical narratives. And you have projects that were integralist before, essentially giving way to nationalism, right? So the French Revolution, French Catholicism, gone. It is not completely eradicated, but the French revolutionaries did their darndest. And so what do they bring in to replace that Catholic identity that was uniting the French before? Nationalism, the idea of a French national idea. And they step on Breton, Occitan, and Alsatian forms of local identity, even local linguistic identity, in the process of building that French national conception. In England, right, so you had the idea of being a good citizen is based on being a member of the Church of England. Well, what do we do with the Catholics? What do we do with the nonconformists? This is becoming less and less something that really makes sense for the the goals of the state of waging war and collecting taxes, and why are we unnecessarily alienating possible soldiers and taxpayers? So because of this, and because of also some ideas of liberalism that have, have developed, you have the repeal of the Test Act. You have Catholic emancipation. Catholics get the right to vote, to be members of parliament, and so forth. 
important. And all of these things lead to a transition from a notion of integralism or the idea that the church is a component, key component of national identity and that conforming to the church is an important part of what's, what makes you English to the idea of nationalism, right? What makes you English? You're born English. You're born in England. You speak English. You're English. And so that is sort of a, a transformative moment as Countries that were previously bound together by some religious elements are now moving toward more of a national sense of ties. So nationalism is a 19th century project, and it is essentially a project of the state. And that's the important thing to keep in mind about nationalism, is that nationalism is of, for, and by a strong centralized state. Nationalism's view of tradition and liberalism is that they are useful insofar as they support that centralized state, and the nation. So nationalism, I think you could say, is not a nation in, seek, in search of a state, although it's been conceived of that way in the 20th century, but initially it's a state in search of a nation. And so there is nation building in a very real sense that's happening. We're crushing all of these other local traditional identities that people have and bringing them by force or by persuasion into the national community. And subnational identities have to be crushed and have to be made much less important than the national identity in order for that to work, no matter how culturally distinct they might be. And also transnational identities have to be crushed or have to be pushed aside. The single greatest enemy and antagonist of nationalist projects in the 19th century is the Roman Catholic Church, because Roman Catholics are considered to have transnational loyalty to the Pope in Rome, and so they are not considered good citizens because their loyalties go beyond the state, and this is problematic. And so a lot of nationalists in this time period, Otto von Bismarck, for example, are very explicit about this point. Even the Italian nationalists can be quite explicit about this point. French secular regimes push Roman Catholicism completely out of the public square and create this idea of laicite, or um, the type of secularism we talked about earlier, freedom from religion, right? So all of this ties back. That's the origin of nationalism, and it is, in my view, an inescapable component of nationalism. Anywhere you look at a nationalist project, you will see these elements. You will see centralized state control as a core component. Number two, you will see the crushing of any subnational local identity that might be political or might in any way be seen as having political relevance. So your local traditions, your local culture, your, your local customs, if they can't be nationalized, they're crushed. And third, there is a deep skepticism of and sus suspicion about any transcendent religious identity. Particularly, nationalist projects tend to drift into the idea of freedom from religion. There are very few historical examples of nationalist projects that have not ultimately settled on freedom from religion as their de facto religious policy. There are some, particularly I would say some Catholic countries have accommodated Roman Catholicism because it's deeply rooted. In Protestant, majority Protestant countries, they've tended to either domesticate and stomp out Protestantism or just try to stomp it out altogether. But there, there is a little bit more, I would say, of a collaborative relationship with Catholic countries, particularly Catholic countries that have this history of integralism. But Catholicism is a second fiddle at best, at absolute best in these countries. And if Catholicism doesn't serve the national end, doesn't serve national aims, then it is very quickly put aside by these nationalist projects. So that is the history of nationalism. Why is this dangerous for conservatism? Okay, I would say that actually nationalism undercuts all three elements of the American conservative tradition. First, nationalism is bad for liberalism because nationalists don't have an inherently limiting principle on what should be rightfully under the authority and control of the state. Okay, nationalism is all about a strong central government. There's nothing, and that is 
exclusively includes religion. Explicitly, I should say, explicitly includes religion. There's nothing that is naturally limiting the power of the state in a nationalist hierarchy. And so this is very dangerous from a liberal perspective. It's also very dangerous from a religious perspective. The historical relationship between religion and nationalism has not been very positive, and religion has a tendency to not come out on the winning end whenever there is a conflict. Why? Because religion tends to actually require difficult things of people. It requires you to live your life in a certain way. Um, it, is, it is a more difficult ask, whereas nationalism just requires you to be born in a certain way, born in a certain place, be able to speak a certain language, right? So nationalism is always going to be an easier political identity, and it's always going to be a more powerful political identity. So where there is a conflict between nationalism and religion, and these conflicts do emerge, they emerge in every society where nationalism has been tried. Sometimes they're less strong, but they always emerge. When that conflict emerges, nationalism tends to be more politically potent, which means that it wins. Right? So this is a very dangerous position for religion. I'll illustrate this point briefly. At the National Conservative Conference, which was held in D.C. this year, there's a fairly controversial but, but famous speech by Amy Wax, who is a professor from one of the Ivies. I want to say it's UPenn. Uh, and she talks about cultural difference nationalism. And she says that it's self-evident, based on a cultural difference nationalism, that what we need is if we're going to have immigrants, they need to be immigrants from culturally similar places like Europe. The top line from this that's taken out by a lot of Waxist critics is that, you know, this is a racist comment because, you know, she's willing to say that, yes, uh, most, most people are, who are from Europe are white, and so, you know, she draws fire from that. I think that's actually much less significant because you could have people who are, you know, culturally very European, uh, but ethnically not. What I think is more significant about what, what Wax is saying is the idea that Europe, which is the most irreligious place in the world, which has explicit freedom from religion, language, and sentiments that are, that are beginning to take over, which has seen rising social hostility to religion, which is sort of you know, increasingly post-Christian in some fairly explicit ways, uh, she thinks this is the cultural model that is the closest to the United States. From a social conservative Christian perspective, that's a problematic idea. That's a very dangerous idea because Europe is not re is really the direction in which they don't want to go. So if cultural difference nationalism means that we need to take on some sort of European identity, I think that's dangerous from a socially conservative perspective because Europe is really bad for social conservatism right now. It's not the direction that we want to go in in any way, shape, or form. So I think that there are some real dangers for those who are, are approaching conservatism from a more religious perspective as well. What about American exceptionalism? Right? That seems like something that nationalism would fit right in with. Here's the problem with that. American exceptionalism says that America is different. And nationalism says that what's most important is national sovereignty. So in a sense, nationalism implies that all nations are equal, that all nations are created equal, and that all nations have an equal right or justification for sovereignty. If you are a nationalist, you can't say, for example, that American values should ever take precedence over Russian interests. So if Russia has an interest in occupying a small country on its borders, then we should let them, based on the nationalist view. And so, you know, America at that point is, is not really exceptional. It's just one nation among many nations. And we may love it more particularly because it's our nation. But the only thing that makes America exceptional for a nationalist is that you happen to be born there and you happen to live there. There's nothing really special about America. There's nothing special about the American ideal. It's just one country among most. And this is thinly disguised moral relativism. 
you know, it is moral relativism. It says that there's no difference between America and Russia, really, and Somalia and communist China. All of these countries are just nations. They're just nations. And what makes them special is that they're sovereign. And as long as they have sovereignty, as, we ha as long as we have this normative idea that all these sovereign states are governing themselves in sovereign ways, that's what matters, right? And there's nothing special about America, except for the fact that it's our country. And I, like I said, I think this is a form of moral relativism. It, it denies the exceptionalism of America in a lot of ways. I don't love America just because I happen to live here. I love America because there is something about America that exists that doesn't really exist anywhere else that is unique and special and beneficial to the world, I think. You know, it's not to say that America is perfect, but I do think America is better than Russia. I do think America is better than China. I do think America is better than, you know, some of these people that think that it's perfectly fine to oppress people and throw them in jail for believing the wrong thing or saying the wrong thing in public, right? There are universal standards of human rights and, and norms, and I think it's a good thing that America is a champion of those things and tries to stand up for them, however imperfectly, right? So I'm not willing to say that America is just one nation among many, because I think that America is the greatest nation on earth. And, you know, that that's not really making me a nationalist. That is making me an American exceptionalist. Because what other people do is, is not important to an American exceptionalist. What matters is that America is, is special. Whether other people want to be ruled by nations or empires or anything like that, you know, it, it's, it's fine. But we would argue that they need to, to have governments that look more similar, and not in the sense of culturally similar, but that they advocate for certain values, because we argue that certain values are universal. I think that's important for the American exceptionalist tradition. You're not really an American exceptionalist if you think that the only thing that is special about America is that you happen to live there. And ultimately, I think if you take nationalism to its logical endpoint, you kind of have to go there. Because, you know, I, I think back to a speech that Obama said, where he said, you know, I believe in American exceptionalism the way the Greeks believe in Greek exceptionalism and the Russians believe in Russian exceptionalism and the Spanish believe in Spanish exceptionalism. You could take out the word national, but that's not exceptionalism, right? So that's, that's not exceptional. It's not special. It's not unique, right? You could take out the word exceptionalism and put in the word nationalism, and it makes perfect sense, right? And so Obama, in a sense, is also a nationalist, but not necessarily a believer in American exceptionalism. So is America special? Is America unique? And you don't have to answer yes to that question to be a patriot, I don't think. I think you can say, I love my country, but I, that doesn't necessarily mean I think it's special as compared to any other country. You don't have to be a nationalist to believe in American exceptionalism. You can say, I'm, I'm a believer in the American nation because it's my nation. And I think, that, I think ultimately that's where most nationalists go. But I do think American exceptionalism has an important element of American conservatism. And I think that if you're going to really defend that idea, there's something special, unique about America, that America is a city on a hill with something to offer the world. However imperfectly that has been lived out, however badly that has been practiced, however poorly we have lived up to that at times, that there is something special, something unique about this American project that has not been found and not been built anywhere else, and that is a model that others should consider emulating, however that fits in with their cultural and their local and their linguistic and their traditional background, that they should consider emulating that model that we have. I think that's an American exceptionalist position. And it's saying that there's something more important than national sovereignty. There's a value that transcends the idea of national sovereignty. And so you can't be a nationalism, someone who believes in the totalized importance of the nation, and also an American exceptionalist. All right, so that's going to wrap it up for this podcast on nationalism and the relationship between nationalism and conservatism. There's a lot more that could be said. There's not a lot more that can be said without this podcast becoming much longer than it already is, and it's already a pretty long podcast. I want to thank you for listening. If you have questions, comments, etc., you can reach out through 
the show links or the Facebook page or, or whatever that might be. I'm not sure as I record this what we're going to have set up for, for Reachback. As always, please rate and subscribe on whatever podcast service you are receiving this. Thank you for listening. And so until next time, this is Dr. Nolte signing off.